0: The kick catastrophe nightmare happened this weekend.
1: The Ravens conjured a Monday night miracle.
0: And John Gruden has left the building.
1: Welcome to Saturday Morning Inspection. <laughs> Nick, uh, before we start, a uh, quick question. What time was the wedding again? Am I, am I underdressed? Am I missing something? Or do I have some time?
0: Uh, you got a little bit of time, but you know, for me, it's my wedding week, so it's kind of my big game week. So you, know, you got to get in the right mindset early. It's all about practice, getting the reps in before the big day on Sunday. So just like those guys in the NFL, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm getting my practice in, got my suit on, getting the whole mindset going for the wedding. Well, I may not be wearing a suit, but to
1: me, this jersey is almost as good of a suit after what happened last week. But uh, I digress. Uh, Another big thing happened this weekend. We have once again hit an all-time viewership mark. We hit over 150 views on our last video. i just like to thank everybody who watched. We really appreciate it. Uh, Once again, if this is your first time watching and you need to know where to find us, we're at Saturday Morning Inspection on YouTube, Apple Podcast, and Spotify Podcast. We are... SMI football show on Twitter, and you can always go to our website, smishow.com, to figure out where we are at. And Nick, I think I left last week off by saying I am sure there will be something we can talk about this week. And boy was I right. Uh firstly, just like last week, there's been another coaching scandal. This one's gone a lot of a little bit further. Uh, John Gruden. Has been fired for emails that were discovered in the investigation of the Washington football team's front office.
0: What do you have yeah, to say? Miles, Miles, I gotta give you credit, man. When you're right, you're right. After last weekend with Urban Meyer, you know, you and I talked how is what could possibly happen to, you know, take this to another level. Well, credit to Vegas and the Raiders for, for giving us just that. Like you said, John Gruden out as the head football coach with the Las Vegas Raiders after those emails surfaced. Obviously, this is a big shock to everyone in the NFL and and everyone in football. uh,
1: We were uh, messaging back and forth through the game on Monday. And when Schefter popped up on the screen and made the announcement, I truly was shocked. I was so—my team was getting destroyed at the time, and I was still just like, what just happened? I was shocked. I did not believe what I was hearing. Um, Because you always hear, you know— John Gruden from Hard Knocks a few years ago. Uh, real team coach guy. Knock on wood if you're with me. Like, he just seems like a nice guy. He seems like a player's coach. Uh, he seems, you know, like a nice person. But after hearing the comments he made, okay, and there's a few stipulations I would like to make. What he said was terrible. (laughs) That's very, those are terrible things to say, uh, Those people are dealing with so many things. You can't say those derogatory terms about anybody. It's just not okay. Uh, Second of all, though, it's just kind of odd to me that now we're in the business of pulling stuff up from like 10 years ago. And while I agree, maybe we should have looked into him closer in the beginning so we're not in this position where we pull something out 10 years ago. Because I'm sure, I'll be honest with you. I think a majority of coaches, GMs and owners in the league, if we start digging through their emails, uh, we're going to find the football culture as it has developed is not what it used to be. You know, it has developed a lot in the last 10 years and we will find something on almost every coach that is equal or worse than what was said by John Gruden that does not abstain him from what he did say. I'm just saying that we're jumping a fine line.
0: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So for me, I'm not going to talk about, you know, what Green's punishment should have been versus what it was or what he said versus, you know, how it's perceived or, or what he meant or his press conference or any of that. My big topics is, is, or my big thoughts on this issue is more of what you've said. You know, I've got three things that kind of jump out at me. This investigation into Washington that's been going on for a few years They've had these emails for a while. This is not brand new information the NFL has had. So why did the NFL wait till now to release it? There's something weird going on there. Second, it's come out that the NFL had been releasing these emails publicly one at a time while in communication with the Raiders to try and force the Raiders to make a decision to get rid of Gruden, right? They didn't release it all to the public and let public opinion and the Raiders make a decision. They didn't give Vegas time to make a decision, they basically forced Vegas's hand say, Hey, you're going to get rid of Gruden or every day there's going to be more and more bad publicity. Now, I don't think that's right personally for the NFL to do that. I think that's acting from a place of false morality. You know, you can say Gruden needs to leave as a head coach and say, he's not the right person to leave. That's certainly an opinion. A lot of people have, but to act in that way as the league executive office shows false leadership in my mind, shows poor leadership, shows no leadership, right? You're, You're pushing an organization, a franchise, to make a decision because for whatever reason, right or wrong, the NFL wanted to get rid of John Gruden as head football coach of Las Vegas Raiders.
1: Absolutely, and I agree. And the more damning part of all of this, who was sending those emails to? Who was he saying that to? Bruce Allen, former president of the Washington football team. Why are we not hearing more about... The Washington organization that's been the story before all of these things have come out why are we not condemning Washington more for the nude photo shoots of the cheerleaders that were allegedly in these emails for the comfortability level for Gruden to send these topics back and forth you know why is Daniel Snyder still allowed to own a team and it all comes down to a comment that I read it is a big difference When you sign the checks versus when you receive the checks. If you're signing the checks, this is the big corporate America giant that we deal with. When you have the power, you are out of touch from punishment. And I don't think that is fair. I think that is really a bigger issue that is completely unrelated to the Gruden issue, but it's one that we have to acknowledge.
0: Absolutely. Right. And and the first thing that jumped out in my mind is they announced, I think it was last Sunday, that the Super Bowl halftime show would be headlined by Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg and Eminem. Now, you and I both grew up in the early 2000s. A lot of people have known Dr. Dre and Eminem's lyrics are far from kid friendly. You know, Eminem himself has been accused of a lot of the things John Gruns being accused of now. But the NFL is hyping up this show and, and promoting it because They think that's good for business. They think that's good for viewership. They think that's going to drive up some revenue for the individual franchise in the league as a collective, right? Everything, like you said, everything the NFL is doing is doing it from the perspective of the owners. And for whatever reason, a group of owners in the league office decided John Gruden needed to go. Having John Gruden as the head coach of the Raiders was a problem. And I agree with you. I think Washington is behind it. As much as we you know, disparage Washington, they're one of the top 10 most valuable NFL franchises. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They're in a competitive market. They haven't been good for a while, but the fact is they are. They have a very loyal and long-term uh, fan base. They've won three Super Bowls They've been, they're been they one of the earlier NFL franchises. They've been around since the 1930s. They have a lot of power and clout in the league office. And frankly, I think it came to a head when you had Goodell in the league office against Dan Snyder in Washington about all the issues that you talked about going on with that franchise. And Snyder said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a head on a silver platter because I've got one right here. And I guarantee you there's some guys in the NFL office that don't like Gruden to begin with. Snyder, or whoever at Washington, I'm not saying it's Snyder, I'm not saying it's not, offered up Gruden's head on a silver platter. And Gruden, to his detriment, had sent a lot of immature and inappropriate emails, put himself in that position. Snyder offered up those emails, and the NFL took their sacrificial lamb and they got rid of uh, Gruden. When really, just like you said, a lot of the blame, if not all of it, should fall on the Washington organization and their owner, Dan Snyder.
1: Exactly. And, you know, just some talking points. Uh, The Raiders may have wanted to get rid of him, anyways. Uh, I have some notes here. So Gruden signed a ten-year, one hundred million dollar contract in twenty eighteen. He became the Raiders head coach. He has stayed for three years. In that three and what five game, three year five games, he has a record of twenty two and thirty one, losing record, no playoff appearances, and no winning seasons. It's not like he's been, you know, great so far. And the team has been losing steam this year already. Uh, You know, I can see them wanting him on board, trying to get him to somehow find a scapegoat clause to get him out of his contract anyways. But it's just, this all stems back to uh, we're setting standards. We're saying it is not okay for this level of person, the coach, John Gruden, to do and say these things. And it's not. I agree, it is not okay to do and say these things. But we're saying, just don't look over here at what the Redskins have going on in their front office that we have all known about before all of this happened. There will be no punishment. Yeah, they fired some management people, but the root of the problem, there will be no punishment or no reparations for what has happened on this side. And I just think that is, when you are willing to sacrifice... Morality for business, that is when things can get to the way that they are now.
0: Yeah, and, and I think it's not even for business, you know, for just revenue or top, you know, top line or bottom line growth. I think it's a PR. It's a PR battle that the NFL thinks they have to fight and they don't. It's, it's almost bizarre. You know, they they've supported. Right. We talk about one of our earlier shows, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson has not been suspended yet. Now, obviously, he hasn't been charged or arrested. He's facing some serious allegations, but he hasn't been arrested or or indicted. And he's still an active player in the NFL. Right. So the NFL is 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 very selective on who they enforce these rules. I mean, they suspended Tom Brady for four games. He was the face of the league. You know, a lot of players have done a lot worse things than just mean messages or mean emails or mean tweets or anything like that. And the NFL office has kept them in the game and involved. It's, it's, it's very strange. It's a PR battle they're fighting, which I think is hurting the fans. To be totally honest here, a lot of what Goodell in the front office has done the last few years has been bad for the game. We talk, everyone hates the taunting penalties. These roughing the passer, these unnecessary roughness penalties, they are hurting the game. Everybody hates them. You know, we talk every time there's a big hit, what's the first thing we all do? Where's the flag? Where's the oh, flag? Oh, yeah. We've been trained to think that now. So it, it's so much of what Goodell has done is bad for the game of football itself. I think they're focusing so much on what they think the brand of the NFL should be. I think the NFL's lost its way a little bit here. And I think the blame falls on Goodell, right? They've, they've lost what matters to football fans. And it's not the shield, it's not the NFL logo, it's the game of football. And I think that's what the NFL office has lost track of as they try and fight all these different PR battles. This is one of them. This is the latest one. There's been a lot of them the past few years. They've neglected the issues that really matter with the game of football. And instead, they've been focusing on winning uh, you know, battles in the Twitter sphere and the Facebook sphere and the Instagram sphere just to get enough likes or retweets or posts. So that way, people on ESPN or ABC or NBC or Fox or whoever don't say mean things about Roger Goodell. Absolutely.
1: It's we're sacrificing the game of football for this.
0: Yeah, it's it it is. And it's not just Groot. Right. And I think you and I agree on this 100 percent. We're seeing it expand into other things, you know, whether it's the penalties, whether it's, you know, different rules and different restrictions they put on players and and certain things like that. You know, the different um, advertising campaigns and things out of left field that seem to come out that the NFL talks about and says they support It, it is extremely against the game of football. Because anything that's not demonstrated in playing the game of football is against it, right? The NFL is a professional football organization, but they focus on things that are outside of professional football. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, pick, think of any business. If you, sell, if, you sell, if you sell like socks, right, why would you worry about, well, what do people think of when they are running outside and it's windy, you know, you know, It just doesn't make any sense. It's outside your realm. Stay in your lane. Understand your business. And the NFL seems to have lost that.
1: Yeah, I, I watch football for the most part. Not lately. But I watch football to relax. I watch football to get away from it all. I watch football because I enjoy it. I love to have watched it my whole life. I love to watch football. I don't want all of this outside drama to be involved in what I'm watching. I don't want all these storylines of This guy said this, this guy said that. That's where you as a business take care of that in-house, personally. We don't need to uh, send everything out to the media. We can take... It's like businesses. You don't hear... uh, If the guy that works at the McDonald's down the street said something mean to a customer, we don't have a press conference about it. You fire him and you move on. You know, we don't need to, like you said, stake these PR battles... All the time, just do what you have to do, make it right, and then move on. And I think we're losing sight of that.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, and as, as much as John Gruden is in the wrong by acting immaturely and unprofessionally, even though he wasn't an employee of the NFL at the time or an employee of the Raiders, he was acting as, you know, as an announcer on ESPN and he was doing some of his other side things. I think right now, as much as, you know, I love football, I see the game kind of tilting kind of on a little bit of an edge here, right? Whether it's these new rules, whether it's all of the, you know, digging up old emails and and criticizing former players and coaches and, and all this stuff coming about, I think it's really hurting the game. You know, I think people, like you said, I love football. Like you said, you love football. We love watching the game. We love watching the players and the athletes and the teams do amazing things, you know, on Sundays and Thursdays and Mondays. And, you know, that's just a special part of, you know, our culture and our, and our life that, you know, you and I, and a lot of other people really enjoy and really appreciate what these players and coaches are able to do week in and week out. We don't want to deal with what the NFL, the executive corporate office of the NFL, you know, tries to do with outside the game. And I think that's hurting the game and it's hurting the players. And frankly, it needs to stop because it's, it's becoming a distraction from some amazing things. I mean, we're talking about what the NFL and John Gruden is right now, instead of, you know, and we're going to get there, of course, but instead of talking about the amazing things Josh Allen has done or the amazing things that Lamar Jackson did, you know, on Monday night or, or Dallas's start or Justin Herbert's growth or, you know, this and that, or, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, instead of talking about the players that make this game great, we're talking about this and it's,
1: yeah.
0: it frustrates me. I know it frustrates you. It frustrates a lot of fans and, you know I think it the NFL and it starts with Roger Goodell really needs to understand that and start moving on and, and doing a better job of managing the game
1: And you mentioned we're going to get to everything, but the only drama I want to hear is about all the missed kicks from last weekend okay that's all I want to hear about so but I think we've got we've got our piece on that. you brought it up. the other drama I want to know is what the heck happened in Baltimore on Monday night? I don't know. I was watching the game. I thought, for sure, we're going to lose. I don't know. what At this point, anything's possible. We could be down 100, and I'm like, well, there's a way that we can win the game. Because I think I saw, at one point in time, on the ESPN app, that Indy had a 98.4% chance of winning the game, and they didn't win the game. So, uh, I, like we have dubbed it in our intro... It was truly a Monday night miracle. It was a game for the ages. I don't think I've seen anything like it in all of my years watching the NFL.
0: Yeah, it was certainly a wild affair. And it, it's, an, it's truly a testament to Lamar Jackson's growth as a passer, right? Oh, yeah. You know, and not to bash too much on Brian Greasy, but I felt he spent three quarters bashing Lamar Jackson as, as Jackson then had an amazing second half and doing a great job leading the team. Uh, to this amazing comeback with a number of great decisions and great throws, high accuracy, unbelievable performance by Lamar Jackson. Absolutely outstanding. But for the Colts, the heartbreak that organization has to feel because down the stretch, if they just did, they had 10 different opportunities that felt like where as long as this doesn't happen, we'll be okay. As long as we don't get this kick blocked, we'll be okay. As long as we don't lose six yards on this play, as long as we make this kick, as long as we don't give up a 40-yard bomb to Hollywood Brown, we're okay. As long as we don't give up two two-point conversions to Mark Andrews, we'll be okay. Right? Oh, yeah. It was So many things that had to go wrong and, and did go wrong.
1: In a way, I feel for them more than anyone is because I'm on the opposite side of those things, but there's been three games out of the last four where for Baltimore, it's the only way we can win is if we do X. If we can knock a fumble out of the Chiefs' running back's hands to get a turnover, or else they drive down the field and beat us. If we can kick the longest field goal in NFL history by a mere inches, we can win the game. And yes, those things have landed our way, and you know, good teams find a way to win. But that I it's like I can knowing how sick i felt during those moments but then we prevail and i'm happy i can imagine how uh you know upset that they must be so my heart goes out to them so a few talking points like you said uh greasy was unnecessarily hard i think he's going to eat his words maybe he'll think next time uh only quarterback ever with 400 plus passing yards to have over an 85% completion percentage um had this game marks him to tied uh, the most wins under the age of 25 uh, 34 wins obviously he doesn't turn uh, 25 until um January so he's gonna get he's gonna beat the record and be the record holder eventually. Uh, another stat Colts have never lost a game when they were up 16 points in the fourth quarter over the span of 120 games where that was the case never until now they have lost that game. And the final point that I have, the biggest mistake the Colts made, the, by far, the worst thing they could have done. Tails never fails. Why do you pick heads in the coin flip, Carson? It's almost like you're trying to sabotage the team. I don't understand what he was doing.
0: Well, I think, you know, he's a you know, redheaded guy, right? I think that's that, uh, that bad luck that comes with that, right? Isn't that what they say?
1: Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, well, as soon as Tucker went out there and he said heads, I was like, huh. You know what they say, tails never fails, and as soon as it hit and the ref says tails, you see the despair in Carson Wentz's face. He's almost like, we're not stopping them.
0: Well, because they didn't, right? They had given up three straight yeah. touchdown drives, and the before that, Baltimore was about to score, and then Jackson fumbled. But so- I want to hit on the point you talked about, about the close games that Baltimore has been in. And this is one of my beliefs about the NFL. It's very uh, old school, old school. We'll call it now New England Patriots with Brady Belichick. When you've got a good coach and a good quarterback and you've got both of them are playing or coaching well and playing well. A lot of close games and a lot of breaks seem to go your way. Right. And that's all about what coaching and quarterback play is. It's taking advantage of opportunities in quarterback position and for a coach, putting your guys in positions to win the games. Right. It's even when things don't go your way, like Baltimore played terrible in the first half. It was only 10 to three. Right. If it should have been 17, three or 20 to three or or a score more like that, if that's a score at half, Baltimore never has a chance to get back in the game. That's a credit to Harbaugh and his coaching and and even setting up game plans that put his players in positions like that, that forced fumble on Wentz and that sack in the second quarter to keep the game closer. So that way, a great player like Jackson couldn't have the opportunity to lead a comeback. So those close games, like you talked about Kansas city, Detroit, and now, uh, now against Indianapolis on Monday night to me, while you feel that as a man, why can't we win more games comfortably? That's a good sign. That's a sign of good quarterback play and good coaching. And I think that's a good sign for Baltimore going forward for the rest of the year.
1: Oh yeah. And you know, I say that, but obviously, you know, the exciting games are more fun to watch at the end of the day. Um, just, now, we can make it like a little bit less exciting, you know, like a little bit less miraculous. I, I don't know. But a few uh, last final notes on this before we move on to even weirder topic, uh, even more unbelievable. <sighs> Two narratives have been closed. That only leaves one left. One, Lamar can't pass the ball. Obviously, he almost threw for 500 yards and four touchdowns. He's closed the book on that narrative. The other narrative, he can't come back from uh, not leading. Like, he cannot make the ground up when they are losing. Obviously, now that has been proven wrong. He came back, and he came back a few weeks before that as well. And he came last year against the Browns. He also comes back uh, from a deficit. So, those narratives have been closed. The only thing we can say now is he can't win a championship, and who knows, maybe he proves that in the next coming season. Or this season. never know.
0: Yeah, he's had three game-winning drives this season, and the one win they had where he didn't get a game-winning drive, he threw for 300 yards against a really good Denver defense. I mean, Jackson is playing at a really high level right now.
1: You know who is not playing at a high level? 90% of kickers in the NFL. Uh, 14 total missed extra points. I don't even know. uh, Crosby himself missed three field goals. Cincinnati missed two Colts missed two. I think there was other ones uh, Houston missed a field goal um, Hunt was blocked Crazy bad special teams play outside of one game this this year or this week Um, uh, Obviously one of the Colts misses a uh, uh, he, he was hurt apparently but one of the kicks was blocked by Calais Campbell But what do you think about all of these missed kicks?
0: Well, it tells you, right? We kind of forget it, and and you're very fortunate as a Baltimore fan to have Tucker, but how consistency at that kicker position and and, at a lesser level, but sometimes even more important, at punter really provides that extra element to your team, especially in NFL games, which are so close right? And you look at Cincinnati Green Bay. I mean, if one of those kickers, you know, they had five tries between the two before Crosby finally made the game winner at the end of overtime, where one of them was going to win. That's the difference between four and one and three and two. At the end of the year, that can be making the playoffs, missing the playoffs. That can be getting a winning the division, getting a home playoff game and going on the road. I mean, that's massive. And that's just what consistency or lack thereof at the kick position can do. Right. And, and I think a lot of fans maybe lose sight of it. And, you know, as much as kickers get a hard rap and, you know, they're not really football players or whatever, it is so important, especially to have a good kicker that's consistently long range that can make all the difference in the world. And we saw it last weekend, right? Uh, Houston, they big chance to almost upset new England. They missed two extra points and the field goal, right? They lose by three. That's a difference in the game, right? That's a big difference. That Houston team, instead of being one and four with four straight losses, Instead they're two and three and they just beat Belichick. They're only a game back in that division, in the AFC South. If they don't make those, if they make those kicks, yeah. it's a completely different mindset. It's a huge role, and I think people are hopefully now seeing the value of kickers and special teams players in general.
1: And special teams play crucial, crucial, crucial. Obviously, I know we have one of the better punters, the best kicker of all time. Um, great special teams background for Harbaugh. Great special teams coordinators. Dallas has one of my favorite special teams quarters. And John Fossil, Um, Zerline has been decent, uh, but someone else has a pretty good punter. And we saw some athleticism on display in the Seahawks game. The crazy double punt that I don't even know if that's legal, but somehow it was allowed.
0: Yeah, absolutely wild. So uh, LA, Los Angeles Rams block a Seattle punt. He picks it up and still punts it again, gets it off two punts in one play evidently it was legal i didn't know if it was or not it was an unbelievable job by him just for self-awareness just to give it a shot and to be in first of all the second punt even after he has a wherewithal to pick it up great have punt. a second punt to, yeah it was a great punt pinned him deep it's an absolutely unbelievable put play and a great show of athleticism and control on his part and it just i mean that's a sort of now seattle still ended up losing you know the injury to russell wilson obviously didn't help them at all but it tells you how important a big special teams play is. We normally think of it as a punter or a punt returner or a kick returner, making a big return to flip the field. But I tell you what, those punters, the, the ability to cough and corner someone or to pin a team back or a kicker to make a long kick that is so valuable. And, and, and that's a great job by Seattle's punter. I don't even know his name. I don't think most of America knows his name and I don't think anyone ever will know his name. But that's a memorable play. I don't think anyone will forget for a long time. Yeah. I Double think he's from Australia
1: actually. I think he's an Aussie rules football player or something along those lines, um, but I, I don't remember what his name was. Uh, I th- but, anyways, good for him. You know, once we figure out what your name was,
0: good for you. I'm just gonna call him Crocodile Dundee if he's from Australia. Exactly. Uh, That's a great, couple.
1: Great Lamar wasn't the only one to set records this weekend. Uh, Rodgers is sole possession of fifth place with 422 passing touchdowns. He's officially passed Philip Rivers. Um, Antonio Brown, what what was his record?
0: Yeah, so he's became the fastest player in terms of games to reach 900 career catches in NFL history.
1: Okay. And, and you have some interesting notes on this. Uh, what do you
0: think? Is is Antonio Brown a Hall of Famer? I think at this point you have to make the argument that he is, right? Barring injuries, he's going to end up with 1,000 career catches. That's sort of a big cutoff. In terms of, you know, it's like 3,000 hits in baseball, you know, or or 40,000 passing yards as a quarterback, 10,000 rushing yards as a running back, where you start getting just on stats alone. And then you factor in, he won the Super Bowl with Tampa last year and had a big playoff run for a three or four year window there with Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. He was the best receiver in football, pretty much undisputably. You know, he's been a great special teams guy. Obviously, he's had some issues off the field and on the field. But at the end of the day his numbers, his resume, his performance, his athletic gifts, his highlights all across the board, he looks like a Hall of Famer. And I I think he is. I think Antonio Brown will find himself in the Hall of Fame one day.
1: I don't think it's any question. Statistically, he is a Hall of Famer. It's just how much do off-the-field issues play into whether you are a Hall of Famer or not? How much longer does he play? If he plays for two or three more years, I think it's no question. If he has no problems, then uh, those Things will be laid to bed, kind of buried in his past, and he can move on from them. So we'll just have to see the longevity of the career past those issues, um, and he's definitely going to make it in there.
0: Uh, you think uh, but... Rodgers might make it? I think he's he's on the outside looking in right now, right? You said who? Rodgers.
1: Uh, yeah. I think he may be in another year or so.
0: <laughs> uh, we'll have to see.
1: Uh, you know, Maybe he has to break all of the records first before he gets in. But someone who may also be in the record books, Urban Meyer and the Jags, as the luckiest man in America, we all said, you know, Urban has the spotlight on him. He has to win this game. He didn't win the game. Uh, But somehow the spotlight has been removed. He can think, uh, you wonder if the, the Urban Meyer camp was in the NFL office saying, Hey, guys, look at this. Uh, we found these emails. Let's go ahead and press these things on out there. Clear the news cycle. Get some new stories going out there. Everyone forgets about Urban. But Urban, we have not forgotten. Uh, they lose again. The Jags suck. Truly the only team in the NFL right now that I like think, Man, they suck. And they're probably safe to say you're going to beat them.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're... They've lost all five games, obviously, their own five. Four of them have been by double digits. They lost by 18 at home to Tennessee. Derrick Henry ran over them. They didn't do a whole lot offensively. Obviously, they only scored 19 points. You know, Trevor Lawrence didn't play bad. He had a decent game, threw for a couple touchdowns, ran for a touchdown, was pretty productive, didn't throw an interception. Um, I I, I almost feel bad for him more than anything else because I think he's got talent. Uh, I, I think we're kind of seeing the importance of leadership a little bit out of the quarterback position, right? I think he's kind of been a quiet leader. He never really had to be a, a team, you know, a, a, a Brady, a Rogers kind of Mahomes kind of guy at Clemson. Cause he was just surrounded by talent and had Dabo Sweeney is kind of the leader of that organization right now. Jacksonville is looking for Trevor Lawrence fair or unfair to be the leader of the organization. Cause urban Meyer couldn't do it right. He, he decided you know, going to a bar in Columbus, Ohio is more important than leading an NFL franchise. Interesting decision, Urban, not my decision, but, you know, interesting on your part. It is
1: a decision.
0: It is a decision, exactly. Um, and, and now it's on Trevor Lawrence, right? Can he be the leader? I, you know, the thing about the thing with Lawrence, I don't see him on uh, the the podium, the press conferences. I see Wilson. I see Mac Jones. I even see Trey Lance, you know, doing that kind of stuff. I don't see... Uh, Trevor Lawrence you know being that vocal um, public face of the organization they need him to be that right yeah you know this is something things like that where we talked about uh, Tebow with Urban Meyer a little bit last week for all of Tebow's flaws as a player in the NFL certainly as a quarterback he was really really good at the podium in the locker room after a win or a loss fantastic you know, being the,
1: speaker fantastic he, leader
0: Yes, and being because it's hard, right? It's not easy to be the face of an organization, especially when you're a 20 something player, still just trying to win games and and, and figure out a way to to get better as a player in the NFL in a really tough competitive environment. And Trevor Lawrence hasn't done that yet. Doesn't mean he won't, he just hasn't yet. He didn't have to do it in college. You know, that was one of the potential concerns coming out to Jacksonville is hey, how is he going to handle losing and being the leader of a losing team? Frankly, he hasn't done much leading, at least in the public eye yet. I'm looking at you, Trevor. I mean, I'm looking at you to be the public uh, face of this team. You're the number one overall prick. You're the golden boy, both literally and figuratively. You need to go out there and and not just play well and not just continue to grow as a quarterback, but continue to grow as a leader, the public face of the Jaguars organization because Urban Meyer has failed you. It's on you now to take that mantle.
1: Oh, yeah. I think, I think two, th- two points here. They're not making the Super Bowl this year. They're not even making the playoffs this year. So do what you can do. Don't focus on those things. You're not going to get there. You just won't get there. Do what you can do. You said, step up, be the leader, show people your progression as a quarterback, work on yourself, and work on being that leader. And I think that's the best thing that he can do for himself. Absolutely. Um, Some other teams who may not be as good as we thought they were. Uh, Broncos seem to be a mirage of sorts after their loss to Pittsburgh. That's two straight losses to two good teams. Uh, they were only able to beat the bad teams, it seems. We'll see how they go looking forward. Uh, Carolina's also fading a little bit, or is Philly gaining? Who knows? We will see the rest of that in the coming weeks, but uh, yep, Carolina's so a slide, maybe coming back down to earth. Darnold was playing out of his mind. Maybe he's settling back in a little bit. Uh, Las Vegas, they're also sliding as well. Um is the gruden circus kind of got them distracted. I think they're going to have a hard time continuing with all of that going on for the rest of the season. Um yeah, those are the the three things that we wrote down as far as teams not being as good as they seem.
0: Right, like all all three of those teams started 3 and 0, you know, and people were like, "Whoa, Denver, Vegas, Carolina contenders." They're going to be, you know, are these playoff teams, you know, is there a little upsetting the apple cart going on in the NFL? And the answer is, doesn't look that way, right? I I mean, Denver, they've made strides and give them credit. You know, three wins is three wins. No matter who you play, the National Football League is tough. But they've lost two games. They got absolutely dominated by Baltimore. And they were dominated by Pittsburgh. They made a run at the end. Great comeback, came up a little short. But still, to lose back-to-back games, you know, Pittsburgh's not a great team. They're maybe a decent team, Maybe. Not a great team. I think this was a missed opportunity for Denver. Carolina, I I mean, we talk great about Sam Darnold, then he throws three picks. This can't be what Sam Darnold is. If, he's, if he's like this, this, this the wheels are going to fall off Carolina very quickly. His mantra has to be use his legs to convert third downs, get rid of the football to DJ Moore, Tommy Trimble, and Robbie Anderson on time with accuracy, and don't turn the ball over. They've got a good defense. They've got a good offensive line, or at least a decent offensive line, good enough to run the ball a little bit. Turnovers are going to kill him. Darnold can't do this. He's got to know not to do this. This is a huge disappointment for the Carolina organization and for Darnold. I mean, I I called Adam Gase, any player coach by Adam Gase, the worst player in the NFL. I may have to backtrack a little bit as bad as Darnold was against Philly because Philly was not a good defense. Kansas City smoked Philly. Dallas smoked Philly. This is not a good sign for Sam Darnold. He's got to turn around and fast. In Vegas, obviously, they have the distractions. I don't know what to make. I think the wheels fall off right with Gruden gone. You know, say what you want about Gruden. He was a very good offensive game planner. He knew how to use the tools. They were in a lot of games. You know, obviously started 3-0. I think he was the emotional leader of that team. Exactly. Because, like, you know, we brought up Trevor Lawrence. Derek Carr is not a – I think he's not a bad guy, but he's not a great, you know, vocal uh, public face of that organization. John Gruden was. Um, And with him gone, it's going to fall on Derek Carr. And that's just not who Derek Carr is as a player and as a quarterback. I I think his play takes a step back. I think the team's distracted. I I, I don't see the Raiders making the playoffs. They probably finished with the losing season. You know, I, I, I don't see how they recover from this. And who else
1: cannot recover for fifth straight week in a row? The poor, poor Detroit Lions. I don't know that, like I said, Baltimore's been winning by miracles. Detroit has been losing by miracles every week another walk-off field goal uh what more to say you know that campbell in tears at the uh the podium you just feel for him
0: yeah and and, and to to kind of juxtapose that against urban meyer right you got urban meyer who was an absolute idiot did his thing in columbus didn't fly back with his team you know, and now it falls on Trevor Lawrence, right? Like we just talked about, you've got Dan Campbell who's up there in front of the podium after every loss, bearing his heart on his sleeve, doing everything he can. I mean, they get back in the game 16 to 15 when Deandre Swift scores in the final minute, he goes for two that's confidence, right? That's putting it on your players to make plays players respond to that. Right. I think a lot of coaches, you know, the way they interact with players, You know, you can kind of tell when they're fake or when they're not really meaning it or if they're just acting like an ulterior motive or something like that. The way Dan Campbell appears in public, the way he coaches that team, the way his players fight, they're responding to him. I think Detroit just doesn't have the talent. I think they've been unlucky. But I, I tell you, it's just such an opposite to me of leadership. When you look at Urban Meyer and his shortcomings and what Dan Campbell has done with that Detroit organization and that team, I don't know if they're going to ever be good under Dan Campbell. It's it's hard, you know. That the Detroit's never been a really consistently good franchise to begin with. They don't get a lot of good free agents. Well, I think they were
1: a mediocre team who became bad with the switch from Golf to Stafford or from Stafford to Golf. Uh, so hope I I have hope. I like Campbell. He seems like a good coach. He I don't know about his game planning so much, but what he can do is like we said another huge emotional vocal leader of his team, Uh, he gets those guys
0: fired up. We have a bad team almost winning every game. Right, And and not only is he getting them fired up, he is shielding them from everything. We're talking about Dan Campbell right now. We're not talking about Jared Goff or DeAndre Swift or the defense or anything like that. We're talking about Dan Campbell. You know, and all the criticism, and all the praise, it, it, it sort of diffuses and doesn't really become a distraction to the players. And, and, and trust me, right, that really matters. Right. When you've got a collective group of people and especially a football team that, you know, are really in it together and are committed, you get the kind of effort that Detroit plays in week in and week out. Now, obviously, their talent is very short, so it's going to be harder to win games. But, you know, as a fan of the game, and that's kind of what football almost is about, right, is, is, is competing, you know, even if you've got less talent, finding a way to get in the game, giving yourself the best chance to win. And I'm going to be honest, going forward the rest of the season, I'm rooting a lot for Detroit. I think what Dan Campbell has done is, is, is unique in today's corporate NFL. I mean, you've got a lot of coaches that, you know, almost seem to be more suit and tie guys, GM suit and tie guys. And you've got a lot of the, we'll hit analytics a little later, but you got a lot of the the MIT and Harvard guys now in the league. And Dan Campbell's a throwback. The players respond to that. And I, I like what he's doing in Detroit. I'm rooting for Dan Campbell.
1: Real quick, we'll go through our last topics to sort sure, to of get on this. We've been on our review, but like we said, there's been a lot that happened this week, a ton. So uh, Herbert, magical performance again. Another close game, another great win by then, another questionable loss by Cleveland. Why can't they hold on to the games? You know, I think they're just the quarterback play is what is holding them back.
0: Absolutely right. And they're good enough. They've got Cleveland, they're good enough and they're talented enough to probably make it to the playoffs and maybe even win a playoff game like they did last year. But when they play the good teams with better quarterback play, Herbert outduels. Uh, Mayfield, right? And a lot of quarterbacks do that. Mahomes beat Mayfield week one, you know, credit to Baker Mayfield for beating you know, Tyrod Taylor, right? Or Kirk Cousins, right? That's what Baker can do with this great roster around him. He can't beat the big guys like Herbert's become and not really to be too big of a knock on Baker because, you know, I know he's really busy. He's making a lot of money with those commercials. So good on him for doing that. But I think what Herbert is doing in, is just elevating to the next level and showing that difference between a decent, good team and a great team. And I think that's what the Chargers are taking big uh, big steps towards becoming.
1: And I think Baker just really needs to think, listen, I you're so good. If you leave the NFL, I'm sure Progressive will still have you on. Like, I mean, I don't know what else to say. You know, it's uh, – he's just – he's – Focuses elsewhere and he's doing great there. So just keep going that way. Just leave and go there. I, you know, what more do you want? Uh, quickly. Uh, San Francisco is really struggling without Jimmy G. I don't know if Lance is good or bad. All I can tell you is at this point in the game, when they weren't expecting him to be in, he doesn't look great.
0: Yeah. So I, I, you know, I've got it written down. With Lance at quarterback, they were what three for eleven on third down, one for five on fourth less than 200 yards passing 10 points. Look, he's a rookie. It's not going to be perfect by any means. We all get that. Kittle was out, you know, injury at left tackle with William. So they're hurt team, right? It's a, it's a tough situation for any quarterback to go into rookie or not, but you know, we hit on it in our earlier shows. You know, I know I talk about all the time with Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, Shanahan is a championship coach without him. He's a 30% winner. He's a bottom tier coach. He knows it, right? He, he wants this bye with Garoppolo to get healthy as fast as possible. They're going into the bye. They need Garoppolo back. Lance isn't ready. Maybe Lance gets there eventually, but 10 points in a game against Arizona ain't going to cut it. No passing touchdowns, one interception. That's just not going to get it done, and uh, they need Garoppolo back, and they need Garoppolo back soon.
1: Yeah, there's no question he's going to be raw coming out of college like that, but uh, they do need Jimmy back. And finally, uh, touch on this briefly, but it is super important. Buffalo looks great. They played what we would say is a medium to high team. They're a pretty good Kansas City offense, a very bad Kansas City defense. But still, they absolutely roll their defense, performs on the road. They look great. I am nervous about Buffalo. I would say between L.A. and Buffalo, those are the two teams I'm the most worried about in the AFC.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about Kansas city's defense last week. We each picked a different DB as one of our top five worst players in the NFL. I picked Sorensen the safety. He had an absolutely miserable game. Dawson burned Knox. about
1: four times that I saw for touchdowns.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's Dawson Knox who, you know, is a good player. This guy isn't, you know, Randy Moss burned him numerous times. You know, he's really, really bad. They can't hide him. Teams, I think, are starting to figure out Kansas City's defense. Mahomes has done six picks through five games. He is not the same player as he's been these last few years. This offense is still dynamic, but without Mahomes, you know, being superhuman or, you know, taking care of the football better, they're not nearly the team they are. Look, they're two and three. Right now, Kansas City's a losing team. You know, Buffalo just dominated them. They lost to Baltimore. They could have lost to Kansas City. They had a tough game against Philly. Right, I I don't think this is a great Kansas City team. I I think they probably get into the playoffs uh, just on the strength of their talent alone. But this is a team that, unless they fix this defense, they're not making a deep run. And likewise, Buffalo, I think, is gearing up for for a deep run. This was a big win for them to kind of overcome an obstacle in Kansas City.
1: Absolutely. All right. A great review, great uh, breaking news segment. But... What we're all excited for is our deep dive topic this week. I think everyone's done a lot of research on this. To get our mind in the right place, are you ready for some trivia, Nick?
0: Hit me. Let's do it.
1: All right. Uh, so pay attention. This isn't just NFL players. What college has the most NFL Hall of Famers?
0: Uh, Southern Cal.
1: Correct, but it is a tie can you name the other team
0: oh my goodness um, notre dame
1: you got both both yeah, of them have 13 hall of famers congratulations the so number number 2 is uh, michigan with 11 and 3 ohio 10 and miami pittsburgh alabama syracuse minnesota and then illinois
0: Yeah, so Miami is the weird one, right? Because I think if there was a run there where they have so many and you wonder, was that enough to overcome some of the other guys? But I I think they had
1: nine Hall of Famers on one Miami team.
0: Oh, yeah. They they were stacked for like a 10-year run, basic 20-year run there. But, okay, I like it. Let's get going. I feel hot now, two for two. All right. We brought this up earlier in the show. Uh,
1: In-game analytics is our deep dive topic for the week. Uh, first of all, I did a lot of research. I'd like to touch on my sources. Uh, I went to the Ringer. I read the Operations and Research on Football paper published by Virgil Carter and Robert E. McCall, a Sanford University article, and a few Sports Illustrated articles. Uh, before we get started, I think it's very important before we talk about in game analytics to explain what are analytics. My definition that I have, correct me if you have any other deferring opinion, analytics is the process of discovering, interpreting, and communicating significant patterns in data. Quite simply, analytics helps us see insights and in meaningful data that we might otherwise not detect. And they help us determine what is the most mathematically correct option to select.
0: Right. It's all about decision making Right, is using instead of experience or using gut feel or or maybe advisors. It's using raw data and applying it in such a way that you think will improve your decision making abilities uh, in different situations.
1: And then I think the most important thing to cover next is how can analytics help us? What can we use this data to help us look at? Um, And there's many ways. And some examples would be things like going for it on fourth down, going for two points after a touchdown. Uh, An interesting one I read about, uh, defensive linemen run more from the bench to the field than they do in actual gameplay. There's something we can touch on there later. Uh, Running plays to the long side of the field. Uh, the use of computer chips and pads, and the uh, tracking how fast players run, all that kind of stuff. Uh, all kinds of things, but I'm not going to take the floor on all of this. I'm going to, I kind of got us started. I'll let you roll into what you have written down.
0: Right, so for me, analytics is, is sort of used in conjunction, right? You can never use it by itself using data to drive your decision making. The risk with using data to drive your decision making anything, not just football, is if your data is bad or your model is bad, your decision is bad, right? Garbage in, garbage out is, is uh, how that's commonly referred to. So give you an example, right? Uh, going back a while, let's say, you know, uh, Derek, let's, let's use Derek Henry in Tennessee. Usually this happens with teams that have a good running back. You know, th- the Titans are win 80 percent of the games that Derek Henry runs the ball 30 times. All right, so let's fast forward to a game and Tennessee's down 25 to 14 with two minutes to go, but Derek Henry only has 27 carries. All right, well, the best thing for them to do is to get Derek Henry the ball three times, right? No, of course not. The best thing to do is to try and score quickly, throwing the ball deep down the field. So that's kind of a, a careful application of the data to understand, hey, it's not just a, a snapshot of information and then trying to apply it to a game. There's some interpretation and, and, and modeling that has to occur. I think for me, when I look at data and and, and decisions, I think more of overarching strategy. Um, I know you and maybe other people think of maybe individual discrete decision making points. So when I think of data, I, I, in the data analysis, and overarching strategy, I I like to think of what I call momentum management, right? Momentum in a game, we feel it, we see it as when the tide shifts back and forth between different teams and different situations throughout the natural flow of the game. I think That human element of momentum has to be managed and you can use that doing data and analytics to determine, you know, the best plays and best situations and best strategies to use when you have momentum, when you don't have it, or when momentum is kind of neutral. For example, if you have momentum, that's when you execute your game plan. That's when you run your plays. That's where if you have a good fourth and two play and you get to the fourth and two, you run it. If you have a good two point play, maybe that's when you run it you have a good fake punt, that's when you run it, right? If momentum's against you, hey, that's when it's time to be aggressive, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you go away from your game plan, but it means, hey, turn up the notch. Let's say, you know, instead of thinking, well, maybe in the best situation to do in this is to just run the ball at the middle and try and get a first down. No, play action, go over the top or vice versa. The best decision is, you know, to, to be in a soft coverage, no blitz, right? So you want to kind of Manage the momentum there from that perspective if it's against you. If it's neutral, that's where I say you tend conservative, right? Let's say you don't go for two, right? If it's kind of a back and forth slow game, you don't really know, you know, both teams still haven't been able to separate. Look, why go for two and potentially risk losing momentum, right? Because at that point, you're just trying to protect yourself and wait for your opportunity to pounce. So that's how I view it, right? I kind of juggle the human side of it, the momentum side and the data side to learn how to best take advantage of that momentum. Cause it gets to a point where eventually the human beings, the players have to make the plays, Absolutely,
1: right. You can, yeah. you can have
0: computers. all the, yeah, you can have all the best data in the world, but eventually a, a, someone's got to catch the ball. Someone's got to block that pass rusher. You know, someone's got to, you know, tackle the quarterback or, or knock down the pass. Eventually someone has to make the play. And I think that's juggling that is what coaches have to be really uh, keen on doing but here. I, I know you've got some thoughts. What do you, what do you have?
1: Well, and touching on more, some examples of uh, how this can be used in this kind of talks. yes, I've, there's a lot more of individual stats I was focusing on, but those stats help you do your overarching theme. Like some things I saw are stats comparing things saying that pass coverage is far more important on defense than pass rush because pass rush can be, uh, they can scheme against pass rush. You know what I mean? You can have guys chipping. You can have guys blocking. So pass coverage is much harder to out-scheme than pass rush is. Uh, giving up the ball with a punt for better defensive field position is far less valuable than the chance to retain the football. And we think, oh, obviously that's correct. But like we say, there, it really shows you gain so much more by going for it on maybe fourth and five and converting than you would by punting it and pinning them on the 10. You know, uh, there's just an... If you have any any gumption that you could make it, it really, really shows that uh, that's the best decision to go for. And another analytic, I or statistical thing, and then I'll go into more of the uh, some history that I read, but another thing I thought was very interesting is the archaic mindset of focusing on 3rd downs. Uh, Every team's judged by, oh, they're, you know, 10 of 12 on 3rd downs, or X of Y on 3rd or 4th down, and this is a stat that we all have fixated on in the past. I was reading some data, and it says it is much more important to track how much yardage or success is gained on 1st and 2nd downs than it is for 3rd downs. For instance, uh, focus more on picking up long passing plays on 1st down gives you much more success than running the ball twice on 1st and 2nd down and then trying to convert on 3rd down. Being get the majority of your yardage in the 1st down, it sets you up for so much more success than it would be waiting to try to convert it at the end of that down. 1st uh, and 2nd downs are very crucial. Um... Because second and short is much easier to convert than third and short. You know what I mean? So, these, uh, they, this advocates more for taking shots down the field on first down and second down. Uh, analytics also show um, pass efficiency is much more important than uh, yards per carry on running. So, be that as it may. Uh, but, all of this I brought back to is... This analytics is great, but football hasn't always been about analytics. And I kind of wanted to get into a little bit about how analytics kind of started. Who started it? How is it developed? And then how is it being used today? And maybe we can even get in a little bit to who's using it the best and who's not using it. And does that show? So uh, the analytical revolution in the NFL, I don't know if you knew this or not, From my research, it started somewhere around 1971, and this was the publishing of an academic paper titled Operations Research on Football, who was this written by Virgil Carter, who at the time was a backup quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals. This was also the quarterback that was uh, put into place. He was the backup. I can't remember who the starter was. The starter went down. He goes in, and this is when Bill Walsh's West Coast offense was invented. Uh, Virgil Carter did not have the strongest arm, so Walsh devised a scheme to do more short range, quick passes to uh, accentuate his skill set that he did have, which is just kind of like a fun fact and almost a precursor that Walsh, Bill Walsh, was really. Whether he realized it or not, one of the guys to really focus on analytical thinking rather than old school thinking is way far ahead of his time and what he did. But Virgil Carter published this paper with Roger Matchall, I believe I could be pronouncing it wrong. I'm sorry if I, if I did, Robert, I know you're listening, uh, who was a systems engineer. Um, and the culmination of all this data, they gathered play-by-play data From all NFL teams at the time, except one, the Raiders would not give them their data. And this was not widely available for people at the time. So from that year, they gathered all the play-by-play data, which was 8,373 plays. And there was also a litany of variables that was pumped into their data source, such as down and distance on those plays, what was the score at the time, even so far as what was the temperature outside in the play. And all of these things, they compiled the data to find trends to see, you know, what can we learn from all of this? Um, And we spoke about the Raiders, and I thought it was funny because uh, in my later research, I found even still today, John Gruden was one of the coaches who kind of bucks the system on analytics, and he still wants to be more of an old school coach. But so all of this compilation of data, they didn't necessarily use it into the best of its ability, but what they did do was they started thinking about it. And uh, what I read basically was uh, once they compiled this data, they brought it to coaches around the league, and they're like, "Hey," or front office, and "Hey, look at this. We need to go for it more on fourth downs." And they're like, "No, we're we're not gonna do that. That seems crazy." But then the next iteration of all of this. Uh, Chip Kelly kind of was a big analytical guy. It didn't really work out for him too much. But the mo- the next uh, evolution in that was the 2014 Philadelphia Eagles and Doug Peterson were really some of the people who started aggressively backing analytics. Um, I believe you remember. They would go for it on fourth down all the time, especially in the S- Super Bowl run, and they would go for two. All the time. They were the ones who really started just going for two all the time, and it worked out for them. Uh, and all of this coincided with another data gathering process we're all familiar with Zebra Technologies and their competitor now Catapult. Uh, they used RFID technology in stadiums and on players' shoulder pads to gather all of this information. Uh, they were the first team to adopt this tech. Uh, And now, widely, I think everyone pretty much uses it. But they're the first team to gather this tech. And that company, paired with this little group that we may have heard about called Amazon Web Services, and they form next-gen stats. And with these, they all compiled all the data uh, to come up with all these variables teams looked at, like fastest ball carriers, longest plays, fastest sacks, longest tackles, improbable completions, and incredible yards after catch. Uh, I have more, but I'm going to stop because I'm dominating the conversation. I've spit out a bunch of information. Uh, what do you think about all of this? Is, do you remember any of this happening, or have you, did you know any of these things?
0: Yeah, so uh, Bill Walsh and I grew up next to each other in the 1950s in California, so no, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, so obviously uh, Walsh and Cincinnati with uh, Paul Brown, they were an expansion franchise, right? So they had to get creative. And like any, you know, like they say, necessity is the mother of invention. So that's where Wall started uh, thinking about these principles. He had Ken Anderson, who was not a strong arm guy to begin with. And then obviously uh, they lose him, like you mentioned, and they had to go to Virgil Carter, who was even less stronger arm. Um, I think it all, like the, the, the data part is all important and valuable, right? But it comes down to also, you have to have the right players, right? Philly didn't win the Super Bowl because they had an analytical process they won the super bowl because they had more talented players and their analytics gave them a slight edge. So it's all figuring out what your edge is, right? If you if you think you can be more aggressive on fourth down and that gives you an edge over your opponents, then that's that's fantastic cuz you have to, you know, you have to think of a way to be different. How do you how are you different than everybody else, right? I think this is something that New England was famously do, right? On defense, you know, t- if a 3-4 defense, 3 down defensive linemen and 4 linebackers was popular. They switched to what's called a 4-3 defense, which is four defensive linemen, with, you know, down and three linebackers, right? Their whole point is just to, to be different, to give teams something different to think about and a different approach and kind of mess with the game flow of other teams. New England would have a left-footed punter, for example. Just anything to be a little different. Now, like you mentioned with Chip Kelly, he had a lot of uh, analytical approaches that did not work for him in the NFL um, at all. He was fired from Philadelphia and then fired from San Francisco not long after that. So I I think it still hinges on the talent side. I think that matters a lot. I don't think it's necessarily when it comes to data. I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, using data means you're going to win or improve better. I think it's figuring out how you can be different in the same way that a a defensive coordinator or offensive coordinator tries to think of a game plan to take advantage of weaknesses in in a different way uh, to attack an opposing team. I think analytics allows you to think of different ways to do some of the same. It's like, okay um we know we like our matchups on fourth down and or on on five yards and in plays you know third and five second and five fourth and five so guess what we're going to go for it a lot on fourth down and five and less because we like those matchups you know and and based on understanding you know hey and guess what we've we've also got data saying that going on fourth down you know going forward on fourth down is is a good decision in a lot of ways you know supporting your win probabilities and things like that that you mentioned it kind of helps reinforce that right so it comes down to you know, beginning in, it comes down to players and coaches. You have to have a good game plan and you have to have good players in the end. If you don't have that, it doesn't matter. But what analytical approaches can do is, is look for you to find different ways to go about it. So the famous way that, you know, a lot of people have heard about is the money ball approach in baseball with Oakland athletics. Yes. So one of the big statements that happened during, you know, during that event in the early two thousands is they lost a, a superstar, uh, I believe it was Johnny Damon or Jason, it was Jason Giambi, actually, I'm sorry. Um, and they were looking to replace him. And the scouting department says, well, how do we draft another Jason Giambi? You know, it's like, Can't. we don't have to, we don't have to draft another Jason Giambi. We just have to find three players that get the level of production of a Jason Giambi, you know? So, you know, instead of saying paying 50 million for Giambi and 5 million for two other backup players, you know, let's play 15 million, 15 million, 15 million. For three players that in aggregate get that level of production. So, again, it's just a different way of thinking, a different level of approach. You still need good players. You still need players to produce. But instead of worrying so much about, well, we either have Patrick Mahomes or we just won't win a Super Bowl. Or if we don't have Aaron Rodgers, we stink, you know, or, or we don't have Brady or whoever, we don't have Aaron Donald, you know, pick a superstar, you know, th- go about it maybe a different way and you can use analytics and data especially in games, to look for different ways to use the players you have to overcome some of those deficiencies and to accentuate your strengths. And that's sort of what it comes down to is looking at games from a different perspective, not just going on gut feel and seeing if you can, you know, out execute a team, if the team's better than you, you know, at, at traditional ways, looking at things differently, applying things differently. And I think that's what the best way of using this data analytics allows teams to do.
1: And as far off as it may seem that we are, that is exactly what my conclusion is all about. So in conclusion, uh, analytics, as we have said, are a deep and wide source of information, vast, vast source of information, and cannot give you the exact formula on how to win games. But what they can do is help remove some of the human error from an equation, and it can help reassure you on which decisions are the most beneficial ones to make. And although when you make a decision, the human element of the players can change the outcome, you know that statistically the call was right, the call was the right call to make, but maybe your player uh, is the anomaly in the equation, did not execute the call correctly and also it can help show you uh more of the things it narrows your vision down and it shows you what you need it can help you tune out the things you don't need to look at and help you look at the things that are most important in game planning uh and aiding your decision process and i think something we're going to get in later on down the road uh possibly and the, after the season this year is analytics plays a huge part in the draft process. And there's so much more that we can get into on that. And I'm very excited about talking about that and the scouting process, but there's so much more to the whole thing. And I think we're kind of on the same page, so to speak on what is uh, analytics are used for.
0: Right. And I think my, my final point, I think you hit on something big there is that, there is so much action and activity going on in game. You have to manage personalities, players, injuries, refs, the other team adjustments, you know, but all these are all things coaches have to do and they have to do it instantaneously, essentially, you know, and then call the next play right away. They have to react immediately and start over with the next play, next sequence of downs. So what using some analytics and some uh, data-driven decision-making can do is it can remove some of the workload and remove some of the thinking, right? It's almost like an assembly line where the workers don't have to think and figure out as much. They they just have to do their tasks, right? They're just, okay, my job is to just put on this panel and screw it in and then put on the next panel and screw it in. If you have data-driven decision-making, then you know, okay, I know I have to focus on to beat this team. I have to focus on these five things. I can't focus on these other five things. So I'm going to use the data, uh, decision, data-driven decision, data decision model to come up with you know, all of my decisions and those five things that I don't think are as important and let me focusing on things that are. I think that right there is the future and the best way to use the data. And I think teams that are successful using analytics, I think that's how they do it. I think they use the data, they delegate the data. And so I'm going to use data delegation. That's a new buzzword for you to tasks that aren't as important that allows them to focus on the in-game activities that are.
1: I absolutely agree. And I think finally, to end off this segment, which I think is one of our best deep dives we've done so far, uh, I'd like to touch on the top five teams who do use data analysis and the top five teams who don't to see if we can contract our own opinions, our own data, so to speak, if it's working, if data is the truth. So, first off, let's look at the top five teams who do use data analysis. Uh, in number five, there is a tie, San Francisco 49ers and the Buffalo Bills. Tied for fourth, so that's two teams right there. I'd say pretty good overall. In yeah. uh, sole possession of third place, the Philadelphia Eagles, and it makes sense even coming from the Chip Kelly era where they started to look into... Data analysis that's helped them carry over into the Peterson era, which eventually won them a Super Bowl. So, obviously, that was successful. Uh, next up has been the Cleveland Browns. They've gone from being the worst team in the NFL to a pretty scary team from time to time. They haven't like completed the cycle yet, but they're getting there. So, I see steady improvement And lastly, at number one, the Baltimore Ravens are the number one team as far as analytic based approach through this survey of uh, teams that have said which teams use the most uh, analytics. So what do you think on those?
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, as with any survey, it's interesting to see what the criteria is. You know, I think when you look at the teams that are the best teams in the NFL right now or have been the last few years. It's interesting not to see new England at the top of that list, right? Cause everyone thinks that Belichick is being this, this great, uh, really logical, rational thinker. And I, I don't, I think his combination of using some data and some just gut feeling experience is one of the reasons why the Patriots have been successful, they're but you tied can't deny eight. Okay. So, so they're not too far off. But yeah, I, I think it's it's not too big of a surprise. I think one of the things that I think is very interesting about that list, right? You look at Baltimore, Cleveland, San Francisco, Buffalo to a lesser degree, um, and Philly, right? What is something that all uh, all those teams have in common? They have mobile quarterbacks. Yeah. So That's I think. Very true. When you have a mobile quarterback, I think that opens up the offense a little bit more and it maybe thinks you, you know, kind of expands your thinking and game planning a little bit and thinking, you know, if I got a guy that can get outside the pocket or run for a first down, you know, maybe that allows me to think more about going forward on fourth down or going for two, because it basically is an extra guy. So it's, and I think that's a credit to those teams for understanding that, right. To understand, Hey, I've got a guy who can move, you know, I want to take advantage of that by thinking more about going for it on fourth down, going for two and and things like that, because I've got a quarterback who's a good athlete who can make plays with his legs as well as his arm. I don't want to hamstring him by forcing him to get just one shot to get a first down on third down. I want to give him two shots because he's that good of an athlete. So I think that's it's, again, it's that combination. It's understanding who you got and then figuring out how to apply it. I think that's Absolutely. very interesting.
1: And to finish this segment off, let's look at the teams who don't use analytics starting from, I guess, The fifth spot, which is the team who would use the most out of this, but so they're fifth to last. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, old-school organization. Uh, You kind of see it how they play. They're ailing lately. They've been in a decline. Maybe the analytics tell them to move on from Big Ben, um, but they're not listening to it. Uh, Tied for third, New York Giants and Cincinnati Bengals. Two teams, one is getting better one is bad. Do analytics show they maybe need to follow it more? In uh, second place, odd one in the trend, Tennessee Titans. Uh, I don't. I don't know. We can maybe discuss a little bit about what that says. And finally, the team who uses the least amount of analytics, Washington Football Team.
0: Yeah. So there's a couple themes there, right? Is you look at teams like the Giants and, and Cincinnati, they're better this year, but they've been bad for a really, really, really long time. And these are teams that have been bad and they need the, and there's really no excuse to not turn to some data driven approach. And you can throw Washington in this, too. Right. Where it's like, look, you haven't scouted well. You haven't had good coaches game play, and game plan. You haven't been great. You don't have a lot, great level of talent. You know, so you guys, you have no excuse. They're not thinking differently, right? They're just saying, we're going to roll out the football and see if we can beat you with our talent and our coaching. Well, they can't. The last decade or so has shown that for those franchises. So I think that's kind of an indication of the organization. Like you said, old school, older, stodgy organizations, you know, and they haven't reacted to the fact they have a low level of talent. Pittsburgh is interesting. I think Pittsburgh's in a tough situation because Mm -hmm. they've had so much success with Roethlisberger. I mean, Tomlin's never had a losing season. So at a certain point, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I think they may be getting to the point where it is broke. They got to fix it. Tennessee, I think it's just because they have Derrick Henry, right? If you got a guy like Derrick Henry, you know, you, you just – You'll have some anal- little success. You know. Yeah, And analytics be darned. You're just giving him the football, right? I mean, it's – that's And I think outside of Pittsburgh,
1: what we could say about those other four teams, Washington, Tennessee, Cincinnati, and New York, not known for great front offices –
0: no, no, and, and I, I'd agree with that 100%. And, uh, you know, not only not known for great front offenses, but not known for uh, great coaching staffs either, right? I mean, when's the last time since Coughlin, you know, in New York? Cincinnati's gone through a number of coaches. Uh, Rivera seems to be doing okay in Washington, but... Well, They've jury's had still out.
1: multiple coaches ever since the 90s. They've had a carousel, so to speak, so...
0: Oh, oh, yeah, so I think it's... I think that plays a role, right? If you don't have a good organization up top and, and you're not st- stable in the coach I think you know that that kind of shines to light some of the things you're talking about you're not taking advantage of some of the tools that can be available to you
1: And I think so uh, very quick summary what we've noticed and through all of this information, using analytics can help boost a team to be a great team. Uh, not using analytics can really hinder your team and can make teams that uh, are great subpar at times so I think it's very beneficial. And like you said, this is the future of football. Uh, In some capacity, using analytics-based decision-making is going to be the the future of football. And now, our own analysis of worst-to-first, the AFC East. So, I talked a lot in that last one. I will let you kick these off for us. So, worst-to-first, AFC East uh starting from the bottom to the top what do you got
0: yeah so i got number four i got miami maybe a little surprise there i am so disappointed in this organization and this coaching staff in this roster right this was a team that won 10 games last year they lost the playoffs on a wild card you know two years ago they were tanking but they still won five games brian flores is the coach i thought this guy was a potential coach of the year candidate dark horse coming in you know, maybe, you know, if Buffalo had taken a step back, Miami takes a step up, maybe they even steal the division. They are bad. Yes, I know Tua got hurt, but Tua wasn't really doing a whole lot for them to begin with. Brissett was bad. He's been bad. It's not getting better. They got absolutely killed by Buffalo, absolutely killed by Tampa. Their only win was by New England at home in week one, and that's because New England fumbled the, uh, the game away at the very end. They should have lost that game. This is a 1-4 and four team, and they are not very good at all. Very disappointing in them. Uh, number, th- yeah, number three is the New York Jets, right? And New York Jets are bad too. But I tell you what, I like a lot of Zach Wilson, right? This guy fights. This guy competes. You know, they've fallen behind a lot in games. You know, Atlanta. Uh, we saw them fall behind against the uh, against the Panthers. You know, but he brings him back. He's got a lot of fire. He had the comeback overtime win uh, against Tennessee. You know, I think he got. He has to take care of the football. He leads the league in picks. He's got to stop that. He's got to do a much better job in those situations. But he's got a lot of talent. He's a playmaker. You know, Salah's got that defense playing a little bit better. Look, this isn't a good team by any means, but I think the Jets are, are – are, they're at least making steps in what I think is a good direction for the first time in a few years. Uh, number two, you, you go New England. It's kind of surprising to hear New England number two in a divisional ranking, but that's what they are, right? They're two and three. Um, yeah, they've had some close losses. I already talked about Miami. They lost a close game to Tampa. You know, I think they're playing hard. Mac Jones has been what they've wanted and more. Um, they had a comeback win against Houston, which, you know, on the road, which is obviously good to win a road game in the NFL. But it's bad when you have to come back against a really bad Houston team. Look, this New England team is not as talented as other Patriots teams in the past. You know, we seem to think that, you know, oh, Brady shifts, and that's the real problem. I, I think this level of talent on offense and defense is a step lower than what it was just a few years ago. Um I think New England has a chance to, you know, maybe get hot, sneak into the playoffs. I, I just don't think they're that good of a team. Um, I got that at number two. Uh, number one is kind of clear cut. This is Buffalo. They're dominant. Josh Allen's playing great. Uh, they got Stefan Diggs, Dawson Knox, uh, Singletary at running back. Solid offensive line. Good special teams defense. Got a secondary with Micah Hyde, Tradavius White. You know, good, good, solid front seven. I mean, they just dominated Kansas City. They've had four straight blowout wins, killing teams, right? You just don't see that in the NFL. They had an embarrassing loss to Pittsburgh week, week, week one, but honestly, they controlled that game. You know, they, they, they outgained and out first down Pittsburgh by a heavy margin. They're four and one. And, and, and really, outside of this Monday night game coming up against Tennessee, they really only have one or two hard games left. I think the uh, the road to the Super Bowl in the AFC is going to go through Buffalo, and Buffalo is going to win this division going away. I think they're probably going to end up being the number one seed in the AFC. So just to recap my list, I got going top down. I got Buffalo at one. I got New England at two. I got a promising Jets team. Don't say that a lot, at three. And I got a very disappointing Miami Dolphins team at four. Who you got?
1: Uh, very similar list. Um, I'm not going to dwell too much on it because there's not much more to say. Uh, and I picked my list, and it was very funny, because I picked the list, and then I looked at the standings, and they're identical. But I got the Jets in fourth just because uh, I think they have the most room to grow. But I think they've performed the least out of them, and that's how I went about picking my teams. I just say they let's give them another year. It's kind of hard when you're the first overall pick to uh, earn a not first overall pick, but if you're a top five pick. Um, it's kind of hard to be expect them to be good when they were the, one of the worst teams last year. Uh, at number three, I have the Dolphins. Like you said, they've been so disappointing. Uh, they looked strong last year. They looked strong two years ago when they were supposed to be bad. Uh, but what is going on? I, I don't understand it. Um, hopefully, they can turn some things around. Maybe two is the problem. Maybe him being hurt is the problem. Uh, we'll find out soon enough. Number two. New England Patriots, like we said, surprise, surprise. They're here at number two. You always uh, this used to be easy. They were number one uh, all the time. But they are the ones that I would say have lost the most, yet they've gained the most back through the draft. Mac Jones looks great. The team, I'm not too worried about them. I think they can fight their way eventually uh, over the next year or two back into being a contender for number one in the division. But as of right now, it is far far and away the Buffalo Bills. They're a great team. And I think one thing we're overlooking is the friendship between Knox and Allen uh that they have. And I think that's what uh that's that's built a strong a strong bond on the field. So I have Bills, Pats, Dolphins, Jets. Very similar list, but uh I think, you know, what else what else can you do? Once you get so far into the season uh, the records start p- to speak for themselves.
0: Yeah. And I mean, for a division that traditionally has been pretty weak in new England at the top, it, it's actually following that same trend except for Buffalo. Right. And uh, you know, I, I think this division, like all divisions, it comes down to the quarterbacks and Miami has been bad and the jets in new England have rookies. Right. So it, with that in mind, it's basically Buffalo's division running away. I don't see any other outcome except for that. Uh,
1: the, Next thing we have up is our weekly top five segment. One I was very excited for because it's a very interesting topic. Um, I'll, I'll start us off. But our topic this week is the top five pair of brothers in the NFL in the past five years. So we cut it off. Obviously, the Mannings would be at like the top of this list. But we cut it off in the last five years. Top five brothers in the NFL uh starting in number 5 I have Chris and Kyle Long. How I did this best was to think of players that I thought were good players and then to differentiate them I used accolades. That's the thing that I could think of the most. Um so the Longs, two Super Bowl wins, all by one brother though. Uh a Walter Payton Man of the Year award between them. Three Pro Bowls and one All-Pro. Not a bad resume. But obviously at the bottom of the list, there are brothers that are better than. Them. Moving up, number four, the McCourties. Devin and Jason McCourty. Uh, I think a lot of this has to do with the team they played for. Um, but teams elevate talent sometimes. That's what good teams do. Between the McCourties, they have three Super Bowls, two Pro Bowls, and three all pros. Uh, most of the accolades are one. With New England, most of the accolades are won by Devin McCourty. But I would say Devin McCourty has been better than either of the Long brothers on their own. Um, so, But they, they're a very interesting because they're twins. So that's an, another aspect of this that is very interesting. Uh, in my number three spot, I have the Kelseys. Uh, they have two Super Bowls between them. 8 All-Pros, and 10 Pro Bowls. Uh, We're getting more dominant now. More and more accolades on the table. One thing that has been a theme through all of these, one brother far superior in the other brother, uh, Travis Kelsey is just an animal. Jason Kelsey was good. He was good with Philly, but Travis Kelsey is much better tight end than Jason Kelsey was a lineman. Um, He's Possibly going to be one of the greatest tight ends of all time if he keeps it up. So that's where we're going. And now to the top two. And this is where things start to balance out a hair. And number two, I have the Pounceys. The Pounceys between the both of them, 13 Pro Bowls and 5 All-Pros. Neither of them fortunately were able to win a Super Bowl but it's just a level of dominance by both of them. They're both so good uh, on their own, and it's like you think of brothers. They they went to college. I think they went to the same college together. Uh, they're drafted. Uh, I think one went to the draft before the other one, and then playing on their NFL teams in their own right. I believe I know Mike was with Pittsburgh, and I think Marquise was with Miami or at least he was there for a period of time, but they were just so good. You never really heard too many bad words about the Pounceys. They've been dominant for a very, very long time. Uh, Both of them out of the league now, but in the last five years, both Pouncy's had played uh, a great pair of brothers. But the best pair of brothers, in my opinion, somewhat of an easy decision if you go off of the way that I measure success. You have the Watts. JJ and TJ, sorry Derek, you were excluded off of this list. Uh, You didn't really add much to it anyways, but three Defensive Player of the Year awards, all won by JJ, an AFC Defensive Player of the Year, won by TJ. You have a Walter Payton Man of the Year award by JJ, and between all the two of them, eight Pro Bowls, eight All-Pros, and three-time NFL sack leaders. Just complete dominance on the defensive line by a set of brothers who that level of play uh, we have seen recently, and we don't know if they can sustain it, but that level of dominance by a pair of brothers is almost unheard of. And finally, my underdog number six pick are the Diggs. One all-pro, one... pro bowl but an nfl reception leader last year an nfl yards leader last year and a current nfl interception leader i think trayvon and stefan diggs are a pair of brothers to watch out for for the future
0: yeah that's that's a good list I'm, I, I like a lot of it um you know i gotta admit i'm not a big Watt guy you know which is weird uh you know, as, 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 uh, prolific as they've been, I felt, I've always felt like TJ and, uh, and JJ while they've been obviously really good players, I almost feel like they're, they've, in my opinion, right. That they've always been a little overhyped. Um, you know, JJ got to play with, uh, Jadavion Clowney on the other side, you know, Pittsburgh has a number of other pass rushers. So TJ has a lot of opportunities. So, so I think they're good players. I just, I've, I've always been just me, my opinion, I've never been a big TJ or JJ Watt guy, but, um, All right, I'll I'll go through my list right now. And I'm starting at the top number five. Uh, I'm going to go Zach and Nick Martin, right? And this is more Zach than Nick. Zach Martin is a Hall of Fame guard, right? He's even played tackle last year. You know, he's six-time All-Pro. He's the best player on Dallas's team. He's been that way for a number of years. This guy's constantly ranked in the top 10, top 15, uh, top 20 when the NFL does their uh, 100 players list. Uh, He's an absolute stud. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. They run behind him all day. Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott's success is tied directly to Zach Martin. Nick Martin was a second-round pick out of Notre Dame, started for Houston a while, plays with Vegas now. A good player, solid player, not a great player. Uh, This is more about uh, Zach at number five. Uh, Number four, I'm going with the Boses, right? What they're able to do as pass rushers I think is unbelievable uh, in terms of just raw talent and playmaking ability. You know, while they may come second to the Watts in terms of sack production, I think in terms of playmaking, uh, hits on the quarterback, drawing uh, attention, I think they're absolutely unbelievable. Both were defensive rookies of the year. You know, Joey has 47 and a half sacks through his first five full season. Nick is an absolute animal when he's healthy. Um, Both teams, uh, L.A. and San Francisco, really demand that Nick and Joey respectively, you know, play at a high level and they need them to be successful there's more stress on their shoulders and they step up if Nick's healthier the uh, Boses are higher on the list I've got them at number four uh number three I'm gonna let my bias show a little bit here I'm gonna go uh Stefan and Trayvon Diggs more just for Trayvon just the stick uh, the statistical anomaly six picks in five games seven picks in his last seven games it is an absolute just rarity in today's NFL, right? You're going back to the 1950s and sixties to get this level of interception production uh, out of a defensive player. Cause with the mindset on turnovers and interceptions that it's, and especially the rules in today's NFL, you know, it's much harder to get interceptions. Teams just won't throw your way. Diggs has done that this year. He picked the, uh, started the trend last year. He's continued it this year. Uh, Stefan, I think is an underrated receiver, right? And and I know he's a pro bowler and all pro, but I think what he did for Buffalo is absolutely outstanding, right? We look at Minnesota, right? Minnesota was winning playoff games and going to NFC championship games with Stefan Diggs on that team. They leave, they're missing the playoffs, right? He is a team glue guy who is extremely productive. He blocks, he catches short routes. He's good on third down deep plays, the whole situation. Stephon Diggs is a truly great player. I'm more impressed by him game by game, watching what he's doing in Buffalo. Number number two, taking a little bit of a different twist here, right? I'm going Michael and Martellus Bennett. And here's why I think Michael Bennett is one of the most underrated players in probably NFL history. This is a defensive lineman, right? Defensive tackle for Seattle for a number of years when they had their legion of boom defense. So Seattle, people forget, right? It was all about the corners and safeties and, and, and Sherman, and Chancellor and Earl Thomas, but they played what's called the cover three defense, which means they had a four down defensive lineman, three linebackers, a deep safety, which was Thomas, a short safety, which would be uh, Chancellor and their two corners, right? One of which was Sherman because they didn't blitz very much. They needed to get pass rushing and run stopping out of their defensive lineman. Michael Bennett was that guy. He was the worn sap of that team. He never really got the credit that I think he deserved because of the publicity that Thomas and Sherman got, but he was an absolutely dominating force. Multiple pro bowls should have gotten a lot, lot more an absolute superstar played at a really, really high level uh, for the time in the Legion of boom, won a super bowl with Seattle, you know, amazing player and then martellus bennett i think he kind of gets forgotten right he was a journeyman tight end. he had over 400 career catches right very very productive guy and he won a super bowl right that's something either jj tj or franklin zach or martin nick martin joey bosa and nick bosa they can't say that right so both of these guys have won super bowls martellus bennett had a huge role in the patriots comeback against atlanta i think that has a bigger role on my mind to thinking of what these guys were able to do in the biggest moments on great teams and in big situations All right. Number one for me, I'm going Travis and Jason Kelsey. I'm a big Jason Kelsey guy at center for Philadelphia. I don't like Philly, but I love what Jason Kelsey is able to do. He's able to run block. He's able to pass block. He pulls. He gets out on screens. He's a leader. He does so much for that team. He went to three uh, straight all pro seasons. The fact that he hasn't gotten the more is only because Philly has stunk the last couple of years. He's maintained his high level of performance. He's a great player and Travis Kelsey. Look, the guy's the first ballot hall of famer. He's breaking tight end records, right? I think he, uh, he owns the NFL record for receiving yards in a season. He is more important to that office than I think than even Tyree kill at this point as Tyree is, you know, you know, there's ways you can maybe scheme Tyree Kill out with a certain zone coverages. You can't scheme out uh, uh, Travis Kelsey. He's been an absolute animal. He's done a great role in that offense. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's my number one. Him and Jason is a number one brother combination in the NFL. Uh, my underrated, you mentioned them. I'm going Kyle and Chris Long, right? I think they did a lot of good things off the field, right? You mentioned the man of the year. You know, they were pretty productive. None of them were really superstars, right? You know, Kyle won two Super Bowls. Chris played a lot with the Chicago and now he's i uh, um, I'm sorry, Chris won two Super Bowls. Kyle played a lot with Chicago and now he's with uh, Kansas City. You know, I, I think they're good players. I don't think they were great players. They're more situational role players who did their job, you know, real, real kind of Patriot kind of guys, you know, and, and I think that got them a lot of publicity, but I don't think they're really that talent. I think they kind of overcame some of their talent deficiencies to have, you know, successful careers in the NFL. And they got two rings to show for it. So to uh, recap my list, I've got the Kelseys, Travis and Jason at one. I got Michael and Martellus Bennett at two. I got Stefan and Trayvon Diggs at three. I got the Boses, Joey and Nick at four. I've got the two offensive linemen brothers from Notre Dame, Zach and Nick Martin. And then I've got my underrated, I got Kyle and Chris Long.
1: And I had Watts, the Pounceys, the Kelseys, the McCourties, the Longs, and then my underrated, the Diggs.
0: So we had some overlap there, but it wasn't the same list. That's interesting, right? And I, I kind of like when we have some differences there, kind of, you know, highlight some different viewpoints and get to learn and think about things a little differently.
1: I know, yeah, I, I absolutely, I can see where you're coming from on a lot of your picks. So I can definitely uh, uh, understand that. I did on my number seven point on here, I was considering the Martins, and I think Zach Martin is far and away one of the best players on this list. But I think his brother's name's Nick. Uh, He just didn't have any accolades really to help out at all, like period. And that was one one thing that I put on my list. Both brothers had to contribute for them to be uh, on the list, for me personally. So we don't really discuss what our criteria is, and I think that's great. I think we can both... You know we do it different ways and it gives two different perspectives,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think we both had good lists. Uh, you ready to move on to uh, our uh, top games of the week and yes. get a little deep thinking on these. How about you go first? Uh, no, I know you've got a little dog in the fight, so to speak, on one of them. So, why don't you get us going? All right, well,
1: I will um give us the other team first and I'll, I'll actually obviously okay, Ravens Chargers. I'm not going to speak too much on it because I have. An extreme amount of bias about it but um, <sighs> at this point in time I have to pick the Ravens to win because until they prove me wrong I mean like they can they've overcome anything lately anything that has been thrown at them all of the injuries everything they've had Lamar is just too good and he gives you a chance in every single game Uh, You just can't pick against them right now. So that's where I I stand on that. Uh, For our other game of the week, I believe we had Arizona. And who was the second part? The Arizona.
0: Cleveland and Arizona.
1: Cleveland and Arizona. And that game, it seems like a better matchup than it is going to be, I believe. I believe right now Arizona is playing a little bit of inflated football. They're obviously, I believe they're still the only unbeaten team left. Uh, I believe they've played a lot of good games. Uh, they've beaten a lot of teams, uh, divisional teams. I chalk those up to probably going to end up balancing themselves out. Those games always come down, most likely 50-50 matchups. Um, they're going to win one. They're going to lose one. They got lucky. They've won the first ones. I think Kyler Murray is great. I think they have a ton of offensive firepower. I think they have some great coaching and play calling. And I think the defense has been pretty good so far. On the other side of the ball, I think while Arizona is an overachieving team, I think Cleveland is an underachieving team. I think they have a phenomenal defense. I think everyone on the offense outside of the quarterback are great players. They have a pretty good O-line. They have two great receivers. They have two great running backs. They have a good tight end. Uh, Baker Mayfield is not a bad quarterback. He's just not great. He's not at the level that you pay him $40-$50 million a year for. I think he's more of a $20-$25 million a year guy. Uh, And that leaves us in an interesting situation. Who do you pick? The team that I believe has been overperforming everything, or the team that I believe has been underperforming. And I think last week, against a very good Chargers team, one of the teams who I believe is one of the best teams in the NFL right now, the Browns almost got the job done. Almost. And I think Baker hears what people are saying about him. And I think the team hears what people are saying about them. I think they're saying, oh, Baker this, Baker that. Well, the team is good enough to win on their own. I think that the Browns can come into this game and win against a very good Arizona team who I think has been playing out of their minds. They're going to come back down to earth a little bit. I have the Cleveland Browns beating the Arizona Cardinals, making all right in the world, and we're coming back to an equilibrium of sorts.
0: Yeah, so I agree with a lot what you have to say there. I I think the way this game goes, uh, it comes down to the trenches, running the football and protecting the quarterback, right? So Arizona is a 28th-ranked run defense. Cleveland obviously can run it very, very well. I think they're going to run it extremely well against Arizona. And running the ball will keep Kyler Murray off the field, will keep him from getting into a rhythm. That'll kind of hurt their offense a little bit. I also think if there's an athletic team on defense that can contain Kyler Murray, it's probably Cleveland with guys like Jason, uh, miles, not Jason Garrett, (laughs) miles Garrett, uh, and the game wrecking potential he can have, especially if, um, you know, some of their other guys get healthy. You know, I think, uh, this is a game that I think quarterback play as usual, as much as I harp on it. I think this game isn't as much as about the quarterbacks. I think Kyler and Baker will both play. Okay. I think it's all about the offensive defensive line. And look, you know, the Cardinals have just played grueling division games, right? They, they had a huge win over the L.A. Rams in L.A. They just beat San Francisco, right? They're, they're riding high. They two big division wins. The NFL is tough. It's close. It's competitive. You know, Cleveland's playing pretty good football. It's games in Cleveland. You know, I like the offensive line and defensive line of Cleveland. You know, I'm, I'm going with the Browns here. I think that gives them a slight edge, uh, being at home and having the better front, uh, Front on both sides of the football.
1: All right, and what what do you think about uh, Baltimore, LA?
0: So the Chargers. This is an interesting game, right? Because the Chargers and Baltimore are both four and one. This is sort of a, you know, who's the second best team in the AFC behind Buffalo right now? Um, look, Baltimore's banged up. You know, they've had to battle through a number of injuries. LA is relatively healthy. Um, I think that gives them a big edge right I think they've they've been able to get more continuity and I think that matters against better teams right against Detroit or Indianapolis you know without the with the injuries you can rely on a, a Jackson's talent or an Andrews right from Baltimore side on talent alone to kind of overcome some deficiencies and in, in rhythm and timing on the offensive side of the ball the Chargers don't have those injuries right they they have everybody grooved in it's Eckler it's Williams it's Jared Cook it's Keenan Allen Right. Um, They've got a lot of continuity and time together and they move the ball up and down the field against a pretty, pretty darn good Cleveland defense. Right. You know, I think their their offensive coordinating has done very good. A lot of play actions, a lot of big plays. You know, I think Baltimore's defense is with the injuries is starting to get exposed a little bit. Right. I mean, Indianapolis moved the ball. Detroit was able to come back. You know, I think this game is close and competitive. I'm really blown away by Lamar Jackson's growth, but I think the injuries on the Baltimore side and the continuity and confidence that the Chargers have, I think it gives them an advantage. And I'm very, very curious to see what Derwin James does in this game. You know, what he's able to do either on the box against Lamar Jackson or covering uh, Andrews, Mark Andrews, the Baltimore tight end. I think Derwin James is going to be the secret X factor in this one. I think he's going to make some big plays. I'm thinking the Chargers are going to win.
1: And he was uh, Lamar's first year in the playoffs. Uh, they used Derwin James to cover Lamar, uh, and they weren't able to get that win. Uh, they actually beat them in season in the playoffs. They were able to beat them, come back. Lamar meets them in the playoffs again. They do beat the Chargers. Uh, so that is, I think, the key points to look at in this game. Is Rashad Bateman going to be healthy? Will he finally play? That gives them another X factor in the passing game. Will Deshaun Elliott come back in at safety? A very big, unknown playmaker from Baltimore. If you're from Baltimore, you've heard a lot about him. They call him the Joker for the reason. He's a big playmaker from Texas. Great football player. We need him back because Averitt alone was good enough to lock down Tyreek Hill on the Kansas City Chiefs. But Averitt with Stevens at safety, that's two backup guys right over each other in the secondary. I think as we saw, the Colts were able to expose that multiple, multiple times. And you can't have both of those guys out. So if Elliott comes back in, I think they have a shot. If Bateman comes back in, I think that gives them a little bit more firepower on offense. Those are I'm obviously going to pick Baltimore to win this game, but those are the things that I if they if I truly want to give them a shot to win, those things have to happen.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think the big thing, right? You're talking about those guys coming back in is Jackson has played out of his mind, so it's hard to pick against him, but you wonder as they overcome the injuries, like at what point has it become too much? Yeah, right? I mean you' that,
1: you're, you're putting so much on his shoulders, you know
0: yeah. uh, there's right.
1: only so far that it can go.
0: Right, right. So who uh, do you got for your uh, underdog or uh, underdog pick or game to watch this week?
1: Well, I don't know what you pick. I think I have a feeling I know what you picked, but for me, because of this weekend, my underdog matchup of the week. And more importantly than the football, I have to pick the Cowboys and the Patriots. Hopefully in my book, I hope it ends in a tie so everyone is happy this weekend. We know your lovely fiance, Alyssa, is a supporter of the Patriots as long as her family. We know on your side of the family, you have a big Dallas following. I just don't want any blows to come out at the wedding if someone says a slight comment. Uh... Let's hope for a tie. If I have to pick, I think it's Dallas, and I don't think it's by a little bit. Uh, I'm sorry, Kyle, Alyssa, Alyssa's family, the Cody's. You just, if you watch the games, Dallas is looking pretty on fire right now, and they're not winning by a little bit anymore. They are finding ways to win by a couple of scores, and that's who I have for my under, underdog matchup of the week.
0: Yeah, I, I like it. You know, it's it's going to be wild, right? You know, we didn't plan it months out in advance. We did not. Obviously, the schedule wasn't released. You know, uh, the wedding begins at 4:20 or 4:15. I think kickoff's at 4:25. So I've I've already made a deal with the officiant to make it a 30 second uh, ceremony. No, I'm kidding, of course. I'll have
1: my earpiece in and <laughs> I will feed you updates as the ceremony goes on. We'll think of some code words.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, we'll we'll definitely think of some code words. It's gonna be it's gonna be a good time. It's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting experience. Well, my underdog pick of the week. Look, this is kind of a stretch. I'm gonna admit it. I know I'm aggressive with these. Look, Buffalo has been killing people. They're riding really high. They just slayed the dragon, so to speak, in Kansas City, right? And I kind of harken back to when Baltimore beat Kansas City. They went to Detroit the next week and they had a battle with Detroit, right? Took a 66 yard field goal to win. You know, and for the emotional domination of Kansas City, I think Buffalo just – it's just a wear down, right? That it's just an emotional low. They blew them out after a big rain delay on the road. They got to go on the road again to Tennessee. Look, I mean, Tennessee has been a little bit of a disappointment. A.G. Brown got a little healthy. Julio Jones should be back. Derrick Henry's doing Derrick Henry things. You know, this kind of feels a little bit like of a letdown game for Buffalo just because of their uh, – the emotional, you know, release of destroying Kansas City a team that's dominated them the same way Baltimore beating Kansas city led to a little bit of a hangover for them against Detroit. I kind of see that same kind of thing going on the games in Tennessee, you know, Kansas city's defense is so bad that uh, Tennessee will be able to score points. You know, I think it's a close game. I think maybe uh, Derek Henry and the, and uh, the Tennessee Titans upset Buffalo at home here. I'm thinking Tennessee over Buffalo is my underdog pick of the week. Okay.
1: See that. Uh, it's definitely, um, Interesting choice. Uh, I think I would have to take the Bills in that game still. I do think it'll be a bit of a letdown, but I think defense travels. I think Buffalo has a pretty strong defense. Uh, I think what they may lack in offensive uh, capabilities because of a letdown, hangover game, whatever you want to call it, Uh, I think they make up. It might be a lot closer than people think but uh, I think the Bills still pulled out. Uh, am I safe to put you down for the Cowboys this weekend?
0: Yeah, I'll pick Dallas over new England and just another comment on the, uh, the bills Titans game, you know, Kansas city moved the ball on Buffalo. I think Pittsburgh scored some on Buffalo. Miami's a dumpster fire. So I'm not counting them too much. You know, I think it's a good Buffalo defense, but I think they rely so much on turnovers and making big plays. I think if, you know, Tannehill and the Titans are a lot better at home, usually with turnovers. So I think I can kind of see that kind of playing out a little bit here. I think, I
1: think think if they can suffocate them with a strong dose of Derrick Henry, uh, that will go a long way into softening that defense up. If they can get off to a good running start, I think that'll give them a lot of success during the rest of the game.
0: Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking too, but we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, I think it's a, it's an interesting matchup, Monday night football.
1: I will say, uh, as we move into our final segment, we're going to steamroll through this. We've had a bit of a long show, but we had a lot to talk about. I don't think, I don't regret any of it. I think all of it was good to talk about, uh, our gut check segment last week. We did good. We were both surprisingly 12 and four, uh, our differences ended up balancing out perfectly, leaving me at 21 and 11 on the year you at 22 and 10, uh, but 12 and 4 is pretty good. We're getting, we're over 75% on our picks. So I think we're looking strong. Let's see if we can continue. Uh, I have us both with Cleveland. You have the Chargers. I have Baltimore. We both have the Cowboys. You have the Titans. I have the Bills. We will start from there.
0: Let's go. Buccaneers, Eagles. Yeah, this is Tampa, right? Thursday night football. I, I think Philly had a big game, but Tampa's too much. Definitely got to go with the Bucks, Dolphins, Jags. You know, both teams are collapsing. I just trust Miami more than I trust Jacksonville right now. But this is Jacksonville's best chance at a win, but I still think they lose. I'm going Miami.
1: Yeah, I, there's no way I'm picking Jacksonville until they prove Otherwise,
0: I agree with you there. Panthers, Vikings. Panthers are on a free fall. I think this is a statement game for them. They need to win this. I think Carolina has to win it.
1: Uh, after what I saw last week, I'm not so sure. And I think it's going to be a lot closer game than people think. I think Carolina's defense what pulls them through. Uh, I would agree with you that uh, also they just acquired Stefan Gilmore, I believe. So maybe a second week in the program is going to elevate them. I'll agree with you on the Panthers here. Uh, L.A. Giants. Rams, LA Rams, Giants.
0: Oh, Rams. The Giants are devastated with injuries. I wouldn't pick the Giants. Rams. Yeah,
1: there's really no even point asking that question. Giants literally have lost everybody. Uh, Mike Lennon's not going to win you any games. So we move on. Texans, Colts.
0: I think I feel bad for saying this. I think Indianapolis is just emotionally devastated after that loss. You know, Texans played better against New England. I'm going Houston, being aggressive. I absolutely
1: agree with you. Even though I don't think David Mills is necessarily great, I think the Colts lost a lot of guys that we're not talking about. Uh, We didn't really mention. They had a few key injuries that really hurt them. One in the secondary. uh, They're missing some guys on the O-line. I think the Texans, in a tough divisional game, are just good enough to get the win. I think it corrects itself later down the road. But I believe it's in Indianapolis. I, th- I just think they, like you said, there's too much that got taken out of them last week. Uh, Texans win this one. We got Chiefs, Washington.
0: I think you go uh, Kansas City here, right? I mean, this is sort of a last stand. They've lost three games, they need to turn it around. Uh, Mahomes over Heineke.
1: Yeah, big Casey bounce back game here. Like we said, there's too much talent on the team. They're not going to lose games forever. I think this is a huge bounce back game and not just by a little. Uh Heineken's Bud Light deal. Uh Heineke's Bud Light deal has worn off a long time ago. Obviously they weren't able to pull it out last week. Uh I don't think it travels much further than that. So KC by a lot. Packers, Bears.
0: Uh this is Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers has been on a
1: tear. Yeah, I don't see I see that uh the Bears have won two in a row now with Fields. I think they're looking hot, but Green Bay looks really strong. Rodgers looks really strong. And Rodgers, like Jackson, uh, it seems ever since a tough week one loss, anything that you were able to throw at them, he's been able to overcome. So until he proves me wrong, got to stay with Green Bay. Uh, Bengals, Lions.
0: Uh, This is Cincinnati bounce back game.
1: I'm going to disagree with you here. I think there's a lot of emotions in that Lions locker room. I think they've had so many tight games. I know Cincinnati looks okay, but I think the Lions are too good of a team and too good coach to lose everything. There's no way they go 0-6. I could be completely wrong here, but I'm going to take the Lions. Uh, We got Cardinals, Browns. We already picked that one. Cowboys, Pats, pick
0: that. Raiders, Broncos. You know, both teams are in a free fall, but the distractions with the Raiders, I'm going Broncos. They're more stable.
1: I have to agree with you. After the media circus, maybe they come out play a strong game for their new coach, but I think there's too much going on, and I haven't been impressed with the Raiders as of late. Uh, I'm going to go Broncos, Seahawks, Steelers.
0: I, you know, you've got to go Pittsburgh. Geno Smith is starting for Seattle.
1: As much so as Pittsburgh. I hate it, uh, I agree with you. Seahawks might be okay, but Geno Smith is not. There's no way they pull it out. This Pittsburgh team isn't that bad. They might be the worst team in the AFC North right now, but they're not that bad. There's no way they lose to Geno Smith. And finally, the last game was the Bills and the Titans, and we have covered it. We have now hit all the games for this week. Uh, it looks like some there's some hot matchups in here, some games to watch. So I, I think we have a good week of football ahead of us. I don't know how much more uh, controversial stuff can come out, but, you know, if they're leaking emails, you never know who's the next coach to fall.
0: Oh, yeah. uh, If controversial stuff's happening, we're going to be here to talk about it, so.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Obviously, good luck. You're getting married tomorrow. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, We will be back next week, so don't look uh, too far for us. We will be back. And we have been discussing, we may start coming at you twice a week. So be prepared for that. Uh, As always, you can find us on all of our socials. Uh, Look for Saturday Morning Inspection on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can look for us on Twitter at SMI Football Show. And as always, look for us at our website, smishow.com. Nick, one of our best shows that I think we've done so far. Hopefully the growth keeps going upwards. I am nothing but excited for the rest of this football season.
0: Yeah, let's get after it. Thanks to all the listeners. We'll uh, we'll see you next time. To the listeners, we'll see you next time.